On your journey through life, you are the hero. There are times, however, when it is beneficial to have an advisor to guide you along your path. Welcome to the Smart Money Simplified Podcast with Brent Mikosh, Certified Financial Planner, Certified Investment Management Analyst, and Co-Founder of MP Advisors, LLC. In this podcast, Brent discusses some of the most important and interesting topics of the day as they relate to finance, the economy, and beyond. Now, on to the show. And welcome to the Smart Money Simplified podcast with your host, Brent Mikosh. Brent, good to be with you again. Uh, You've got an interesting guest this week. What are we going to be talking about? Yeah, we're going to be talking about uh, Operation Fast and Furious. We're going to talk about government whistleblowing. We're going to talk about a lot of a lot of things that I think are going to be pretty interesting to our listeners. I've got a phenomenal guest on. I'm really excited to have this conversation. I got Peter Forcelli. He is a retired deputy assistant director from the U.S. Department of Justice, U.S. Department of Justice with the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives. And we're just dis- having a discussion before we started recording this. And he and I, at least geographically, our paths have crossed quite a bit because he was with the Bronx of the police department for years and years. Uh, I was also, of course, back in New York City. Uh, this is, is as we're recording this anyway, is September 15th. And earlier this week was the anniversary of September 11th. Uh, Peter was downtown on September 11th, uh, as was I. And we both made our way out to Arizona here, of course, independently in 2007. But I'm really excited about this because he's got um, he's testified before Congress about Fast and Furious. He's got a book coming out next year that I pre-ordered called The Deadly Path, uh, which is, again, discussing his experience with the ATF and with Fast and Furious. And I'm just really excited to have this conversation with Peter today. So thank you for being here, Peter. And and anything you would like to add in terms of that rambling introduction I just gave you? No, no, I appreciate being here. And like, you know, like we said before uh, we went live, no questions are off limits. You know, I think it's important that folks know what happened with Fast and Furious, what ATF does well, what they get wrong. I think one of the problems that we see with government, especially now, is there's always this inclination to kind of hide things. And sometimes they forget who they work for. We we work for the taxpayers. I never lost sight of that. Most of the folks I work with never lost sight of that. Some of the leaders did. But, you know, you got to keep people honest because government works for the people. It's not the other way around. It's really one of the reasons I want to have this conversation today, because I think that one of the recurring themes that I've had with clients and, you know, I work with people that are all over the political spectrum. They could be the left. They could be the right. There's most people, I think, are somewhere in the middle. But there is a growing distrust of a lot of these institutions, whether large corporate institutions, government institutions, you name it. And you really dove into that with with your experience, of course, uh, you know, testifying in front of Congress and with Fast and Furious. But before we dive into that, you know, give me a sense of what your background has been in law enforcement. I know you came up through through New York City. And if you want to talk a little bit about that and then we can take the story from there. Yeah. And, and I think it's relevant, actually, because it's the stuff I learned early in my career from old timers that really took the time to teach me the important things about the profession that factored into the decisions I made in Arizona. I started my policing career in January of 1987 um, in the New York City Housing Authority Police Department. It's before Giuliani merged the three departments together. So you took the same test, went through the same academy, found out I was going to the New York City Housing Authority Police, was disappointed at first because I wanted to be an NYPD cop. Turned out I actually wound up loving the job, uh, walked the beat, which is great because you learn how to talk to people when you're alone on foot, you know, learn how to de-escalate situations. Communication is just so important. Uh, eventually, got into the detective bureau with the New York City Housing Authority Police, and then Giuliani merged 
the three agencies together, uh, landed on my feet, wound up in the 46th precinct robbery squad for a short time. They used to call it the most dangerous square mile in North America. Back then, it had about 100 murders in that one square mile a year, over 3,000 robberies. So he really learned uh, the ins and outs of policing and went to the 45th precinct detective squad for a short time, different area. Um, Throg's neck, it's kind of nicer, you know, a, a lot of Italian Americans, a lot of organized crime type cases, which are the real whodunits, which were kind of cool to work. And then wound up uh, going to the Bronx homicide squad. And it was there that I got involved with a, a program that I, we actually started sort of working on federal cases because New York had finally come to the epiphany that yet yeah, there's a gang problem here. And the dis local district attorney's offices weren't really very effective at dismantling them because Rikers Island was a churning ground for criminals. So bad guys went away, um, built a network of bigger and better contacts, came out better criminals. So we started working on these federal cases. And one of the tools that we used to get into them was we would aggressively go after folks who got caught with guns, who were prior felons, um, or who had some other baggage like uh, drug abusers and, and again, criminals, not honest uh, you know, law-abiding citizens, with the with the um, intention of just getting them out of the cycle of Rikers Island going in, coming out. So, it, you know, federally, you're going to a prison somewhere, maybe outside of New York. Um, you're not plea bargaining your your crime down to like 30 days. You know, instead of getting charged with possessing a gun, New York loves to say they have the strictest gun laws in the country, uh, but everybody pleads down to attempted possession of a weapon. And they'll and this, I'm not talking about regular people. I'm talking about violent criminals. So then they're just coming back out. So by charging them federally, we kept them in jail longer. And criminals don't like to spend time in jail, especially when they're not with their pals. So what was happening is folks would come in and give us a ton of information to reduce their sentences. So that turned into a really successful program. It was called Operation Trigger Lock. And my last homicide case in New York that went to the state was the beating death of a four-year-old child named Joseph Dauphin. Stepfather beat him to death. Kid soiled himself. He was mentally handicapped, um, the kid. And um, as soon as the, the stepfather changed him, he soiled himself again. And the guy went into a rage and beat the kid to death. And Joseph's killer, stepfather, did four years in prison. We were arresting people for being felons in possession of firearms, and they were averaging four years in prison. And again, these are bad people who had guns, who weren't carrying them to protect themselves. They were out there carrying them to do other things. Recognizing the federal sentencing guidelines were so much better, I decided to jump ship. I, I went to ATF because we work with them a lot. They were really good when it came to going after the gangbangers and whatnot. So I spent, you know, roughly six years in New York working cases involving gangs or home invasion crews that were out there robbing drug dealers to make money, and um, promoted and went out to Phoenix. And in Phoenix is where the whole Fast and Furious mess happened. But ha by the time I got to Phoenix, I had done around two hundred roughly federal gun cases. And so I kind of knew how it worked. And we took some of those smaller cases and turned them into racketeering cases, continuing criminal enterprise cases. I mean, we that was the purpose of it, was to go after really bad people who were pulling a trigger, shooting other people. Yeah, when I got out to Arizona, what I had observed was that the way the U.S. Attorney's Office was conducting their business was vastly different than what was happening in New York. And I, while I'll never excuse what I saw during Operation Fast and Furious, the, the reason... I named the book The Deadly Path is there were some actions by the U.S. Attorney's Office in Arizona on a number of gun cases that I believe paved the path for agents to reinvent the wheel and to attack that investigation in the way that they did. I mean, when they were doing things the way agents were doing them in other parts of the country, they were constantly being told 
know or why that case couldn't be brought for prosecution. And I'm I'm talking about cases like, for example, there's one case I describe in the book where a gun was used within 48 hours after it's being purchased to kill over 21 people in Cananea, Mexico, which is just 40 miles south of the U.S.-Mexican border. We had confessions um, from the straw purchaser. We had a confession from the trafficker. And that case was declined for prosecution. Four dead cops among the 21 and other cops were taken out into the desert and tortured and left for dead. Now, granted, these were Mexican police officers, but the way my team looked at it, they were human beings. And, of you know, course, I mean, yeah. th- these weren't, this wasn't someone whose whose gun was stolen out of his car. I mean, where they had no culpability. These were people who intentionally trafficked the guns to the cartels and the U.S. Attorney's Office wouldn't prosecute the case. That was one of many, many, many cases you know, I mean, look, we interdicted the firearms when we believed they were going into the hands of the wrong people. But the problem was no one was going to jail. So we were never able to break that cycle. And, and the, the most amazing thing to me, you know, and we can talk about this later, is now the gun industry is being sued by the government of Mexico. Right. A lot of these organizations could have been taken apart had the U.S. Attorney's Office done its job. Instead, they chose to punt and, you know, kick the can down the road and not do their job. And that's largely what I testified about in front of Congress was the the just dozens of cases that we had that went to the U.S. Attorney's Office that went nowhere, you know, which was tragic. Now, I want your all distinction because you mentioned, obviously, when you came in as a guy that grew up in New Jersey and then moved to New York City in 1996, New York City in the 1980s into the early 1990s was a really different place. I mean, this is when you had the Escape from New York movies. It was a city that was considered to be ungovernable. Uh, I think you had a couple thousand homicides a year there. And you were a part of really, really dramatically cleaning up that city to by the time I left in 06 between Giuliani and then on the and then, you know, Bloomberg obviously took over after that. It was probably the safest big city in the world. So when you came from a place where obviously whatever was happening from the law enforcement side was really working, what was the biggest difference that you saw once you arrived in Phoenix? Because obviously, you know, same federal agency. One's parked in New York City, others parked out here in Arizona. Arizona, we're in the West. You would have thought it was it would be the Wild West. And you have this vision, of, of course, is what would be going on that, down here. But was it just purely ignoring crimes or was it a culture of just apathy? What was what was the driver behind that? Well, it, it's difficult to tell. And to your point, like, I, yeah, I was down there in New York during that time where and New York averaged 2000 murders a year. The Bronx, where I started when I first got to the Bronx Homicide Squad, the Bronx, which is just a county, averaged 600 murders a year. That number was reduced to around 200. And look, you know, I was a cop. I'm proud of what we did. I got to give credit where it's due. Some of the unsung heroes of reducing crime in New York City were the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York. And that's because they were using the RICO laws, which were originally designed to go after the mob, to go after violent street gangs. So you were taking these the most violent people in New York City who do a lot of the shooting, and you were putting them in jail for 30 years, their, you know, life. So you disrupted that cycle. To do that, though, you had to have the buy-in of federal prosecutors, because there's a lot of tools that are available to federal agents that locals don't have. Uh, and, you know, time is one thing, money. You know, I mean, when I was a, a detective in the Bronx, if I had caught a homicide, I had four days to solve it before I might catch another homicide. So now you, once you have multiple homicides, they get harder to solve because, you know, you got to spread your time between a bunch of cases. As a federal agent, those cases were mine, stayed open. I could work them as long as I want. And they weren't closed until the case went to trial and they were they would remain open through an appeal. So, I mean, we had time, we had money, Um, but the prosecutors brought other things to the table, grand jury subpoenas, 
uh, proffers, which is when you sit down with a defendant and his attorney and you just turn them inside out for every piece of information that they have. So you're interviewing these people sometimes 20, 30 times to get all that information. You know, uh, writs of habeas corpus, for example, like let's say that you had some knowledge of stuff that was happening in the street and you're sitting in a jail cell. Well, we would get a court order to pull you out of jail and drive you around and you would show us like, yeah, that you know, I saw a homicide in this building and that's who did it. And all on this corner, um, you know, I was involved in this robbery and who I did it with. So, I mean, we would then go and corroborate all these things. So we never took the words of these criminals at face value. Then it was our job to go and find the evidence and 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 corroborate everything they said and confront them when things didn't add up. And, you know, sometimes it would be, you know, an honest mistake. Other times it would be something that was a little more nefarious. And then those people who lied to us, their cooperation agreements got ripped up and they would do the maximum. So, I mean, when, when these right. folks would come in, there was, um, you know, you're making a deal with the devil. And, and I understand why some folks find that distasteful. But, I mean, we were solving murders that were unsolved and some considered unsolvable by having the folks involved in it now coming in and talking to us about other things they did. We actually wound up getting eight innocent people out of prison um, for murders they didn't commit when we would proffer these people and say they would know either who was involved or in some instances they themselves were involved and the NYPD locked up the wrong person because of a mistaken identity or something like that. So, I mean, these were just, it was a bonanza of, of information for you to go out there and, and follow up on. So when I got to Arizona, having worked with the U.S. Attorney's Office in New York, I was really looking forward to going there and building those sorts of relationships with the U.S. Attorney's Office for the District of Arizona. And I learned very quickly they didn't want to have those relationships. And a lot of the things that we did in New York and that I knew agents in other parts of the country were doing, we couldn't do because the U.S. Attorney's Office really just lacked any sort of commitment to go out there and, and do their jobs, right? Uh, you know, I mean, I don't know how else to describe it. There was this culture of arrogance and laziness that really hampered not just ATF, but other federal agencies as well. And, you know, for me, the heartbreaking part of it was I went out to Phoenix. This was my first position as a supervisor. And when you're leading a team, you want for your people what you had if when you, when things were good. And I would see these agents try and try and fail and fail, not because of things that that they did wrong, but because when they would need a search warrant or they would want to get a subpoena, they were always told no. Or, you know, they would have a, a great case that they would bring to the U.S. attorney's office and the U.S. attorney's office wouldn't be interested in taking it. You, you know, when you look at it, yes, it affected what was going on in Mexico, obviously, because that's where most of the guns that were being smuggled in the cases we worked were going. But it also meant that the federal agents that worked in Phoenix would never reach their full capabilities. I mean, so think about that for, for a second as a leader, how heartbreaking it is to see your people through no fault of their own will never reach their full potential. And that was it was that mindset that was one of the two things that broke the camel's back and led me to contact Congress about what was happening in Fast and Furious. So did you realize this right away when you arrived that uh, you're looking and you're seeing obviously things going down that you had the ability to go in there and, and hopefully make some arrests or, or at least launch some investigations and just zero support? Was it apparent right away? It was quick. And I'll give you an example. Like, you know, my first weekend out in Phoenix, my well, not the first weekend I was out there, my first weekend working in Phoenix because we spent some time setting up the house. I don't want to leave my wife doing all that herself. We just moved across the country, took her away from her family. But the first weekend, we got a call from a gun dealer, licensed gun dealer, and this is invariably how they worked. Um, hey, there's a suspicious a couple of guys in here, they just came in with a bag of money. They asked how many of the AK variant rifles that we have on the shelf. And again, they're not AK-47s like the media 
would try to portray them to be. They're um, sporting rifles that look like AK-47s, but they're not fully automatic. They're not assault weapons, which is what a Kalashnikov is. They are semi-automatic rifles that look and feel like an AK-47, but they're not. So anyway, this person came in and asked how many they had on the shelves and handed a bag of money and bought 13 AK-47s. Again, the knockoffs, when I say it, I'm just abbreviating. But what they would do is they would wait till we can get outside and set up surveillance, perhaps even have an agent go inside and just see who's doing the transaction. So we followed this vehicle from the gun dealer till it got to the I-10 and it was a van and we pull it over and we asked the occupants of the van, you know, where are you coming from? We separate them, obviously. Um, they lie, you know, because we saw them come from the gun dealer. We were watching. They don't know that we were watching. We catch them in enough lies that we decide, all right, this is certainly an unlawful purchase. Looks suspicious enough. So we call the U.S. Attorney's Office and they're like, yeah, hey, we'll, we'll indict it later. So I'm I'm a brand new supervisor one weekend at this time. And in New York, and again, I'm not saying that what New York does is always right either. Um, but generally, that it would have been like, all right, well, we'll draw a complaint, bring them in, um, put them in a county jail for the night. We'll take it tomorrow. What I would here on that particular car stop is we'll let them go and we'll indict it later. Now, the, the, the concern that I had, and again, I had no exposure to Arizona to the culture there I'm learning was, you know, these are guys who are smuggling guns to the cartels. They're not people who are buying guns to go hunting or to give them as gifts to family members. So I'm like, all right, well, we know they had guns this time. Now you're telling me to let these folks go and we'll get them later. You're asking me to endanger my folks Again, and all right, well, if that's how it is, that's how it is. And I didn't really push back because I was like, I'm a brand new boss in a new part of the country. And if that's the policy, that's the policy. But what I would learn is that a lot of these, hey, we'll indict it later, led to either they would sit on it and never indict it because, you know, you'd wait for them to make a decision or they would flat out say, no, take it to the county. And at that point, we didn't have a relationship with the Arizona Attorney General's office. That's something I developed later. So, I mean, we, we were basically giving firearms traffickers a pass. Um, to stay why? on the streets longer, <laughs> or in some instances, to stay on the streets forever. I I couldn't tell you why, and did I wish you ask I knew. The question though, did you, when, when you were told, yeah, stand thirteen AKs, who cares? And you were asked to stand down on that. Was did you say, well, why, why, why won't we at least explore this? We were given excuses more often than not. Often it was like, hey, we haven't made a decision yet. I, in fact, I, I, it's funny. I, I touch on it in the book. I had one our case reports, which is basically a, a form. It's a package of forms containing the uh, reports that the agent does and the evidence that we would submit in support of that prosecution. They were in a, um, a, a case report called the Blue Jacket. So it was medium blue, a little darker than like the powder blue shirts that folks wear as dress shirts would be the, the cover page. I remember in one instance, we were waiting for a decision to be made on that case. And I sent the agent over to get the Blue Jacket. And he came back to the office and threw it on my desk. And again, we were waiting for a decision on a prosecution. It had been on the, the prosecuting attorney's windowsill for so long that it was bleached white and you couldn't even see the writing that was on the document anymore. Hmm. So, I mean, and this is just how it was. When I, when I got to Phoenix, our group had 448 open cases. So I started looking through those and there were about a dozen that we had to close because the U.S. attorney's office had kicked the can for so long that the statute of limitations had expired. So, I mean, this is just stuff that just doesn't normally happen with a federal prosecutor's office. Well, particularly in a major border state. I mean, because yeah. we've got, you know, we share a very large international border here and there's bad stuff that crosses that border. That's pretty amazing. And, and so it's just 2007. And you recognize this right away. 
at what point did you have a knowledge that this thing fast and furious existed at what point did you decide that you wanted to you know let obviously your superiors in dc know what was happening what, what was what was that next step from 2007 till 2010 we a couple things would happen like i said a lot of these cases we would call the u.s attorney's office and they would either decline it or keep kicking the can and we would wind up taking it to the county prosecutor's office which is kind of unfair to the county if you think about it because they have limited resources their prosecutors get paid far less than AUSAs. we didn't like bringing cases to them although they were great partners so th that would be one issue and you know the other thing is we would also have other things happen with the u.s attorney's office so like one example is we had an informant that come to us with a bunch of cases, just good stuff. He worked in a gun dealer. He would see things. So we had like probably like a dozen or so cases that hung on his testimony. The U.S. Attorney's Office called the meeting and decided that they didn't like him. First, they said he lied. We proved that was not true. Then they said that he DOJ policy wouldn't let us use him because he was moved with DOJ funds because he was threatened one time in a previous case. Um, that was also a lie because you can use him. You just have to... Be you would have to tell the defense attorneys or that he was paid in the past. And, you know, the jury would have to consider whether or not that influences testimony, but it doesn't mean you can't use the guy. So they lied about that. And then finally they declined using him because according to the, the woman who at the time was the chief of the gun unit, um, he wore too many gold chains and then the jury wouldn't be able to relate to him. So we're just, you know, blanketly saying we're not going to do any cases that he was involved in. So that was dozens of traffickers right there that got a pass because of a decision that when I, you know, here I am still, you know, over a decade later trying to figure out why the only conclusion I come to is either complete, you know, lack of caring about what was happening in Mexico or gross incompetence and laziness. So, I mean, those are the kind of things that we dealt with. So by the time Fast and Furious started, which was in around 2010, that, which, so you got to remember, my group in, from 2007 till around that time of 2010, we were the Mexico-bound firearms trafficking group. Mm -hmm. We weren't being able to take the cases to the U.S. Attorney's Office. We had formed a partnership with the Arizona Attorney General's Office, which, by the way, when I called them, didn't do gun cases. They didn't even have a gun unit. When I called them, I was expecting to be told to pound sand, and I was really happy when they said, hey, why don't you just come in and let's sit down and talk? And so we had a conversation about what was going on. And they were like, hey, we'd like to start working with you. So I was like, hey, that's great. Then when can we start? And they're like, right now. I mean, they saw the crisis. They were willing to change how they did business to help deal with the crisis. Mm -hmm. Yet the folks who were tasked with you know, doing it or you know, by duty just chose to thumb their noses at it. So by the time Fast and Furious happened, our group was changed. Our priority was changed to home invasions and kidnappings because Phoenix at the time, around 2010, had led the country in home invasions and kidnappings. And for this hemisphere, we were second in the world, which is not a distinction that anybody really wanted, right? The new, a new group was stood up, which was Phoenix Group 7. I ran Phoenix Group 1. And that group was tasked with the um, Mexico-bound firearms trafficking. So their very first big case turned into Operation Fast and Furious. But the thing that most folks don't understand is the, you know, happy to share it with you, the U.S. Attorney's Office in Arizona had come up with this ruling their office policy, which whenever they say, hey, we have a new office policy, you knew it was coming, man. It was just, oh boy, here we go. So they had come up with this decision that once a gun gets to Mexico, the body of the crime is in Mexico, so you can't prosecute that case unless you can get the gun back here, which is an impossibility because the Mexicans are not going to give us a gun that we can then bring back into this country. Just, it just 
So long story short, we we had dozens and dozens and dozens of cases where they would say they couldn't prosecute it when the charge was lying on the form, lying on the form 4473. So it was like we would have the form in hand and I would argue that they could charge it. They would argue that they couldn't. Um, and this was the only U.S. attorney's office in the country that took that position. And I can only assume that they took it because it just took a bunch of cases off their docket. When Fast and Furious starts, the plan changes to letting the guns go to Mexico, tracing them back, and taking down a cartel, which when you think about it is absolutely delusional because DEA had tremendous resources in Mexico. Uh, DEA is very good at gathering and using intelligence, and they had vetted units, and the drug conspiracy laws are quite strong. Um, straw purchasing laws, not so much. So to think that you were going to take down a cartel by utilizing the straw purchasing laws was insane in of itself. But when you think how for years that office, the U.S. Attorney's Office's strategy was um, once the gun goes to Mexico, the case was dead, all of a sudden changes to, well, let's send the guns to Mexico. And it's the same prosecutors that told us no for three years were really the architects of Operation Fast and Furious. So yes, ATF was involved. And yes, ATF should have interdicted those guns and taken them to the state like we did for years rather than let them ride off into the sunset. But what a lot of folks don't realize is the architects of Operation Fast and Furious were prosecutors. I mean, did you know, though, that we have this thing we're doing now and it's Operation Fast and Furious? Or was it something that you discovered where all of a sudden you're just seeing these guns walk across the border? Well, what was going on is we we had heard at meetings because they sat in a different building than us about a case that they had stumbled into that had about 600 guns. So. At that first meeting, my thoughts were that they found a dealer who they in going through his records, they were able to identify a pattern of trafficking that and that amounted to 600 guns, which can happen. So that was my first thought was that that's that's what occurred here. But as we would have subsequent meetings, the numbers would go up and up. So we would ask, hey, are you guys stopping and interviewing the straw buyers? Like, what's going on? And we'd be told, no, no, we're doing something else. We're doing something different. Okay. No one in in our office space ever dreamed that guns were riding off into the sunset. And it's funny because when when we would, you know, later on when Fast and Furious became a thing, when we would tell people what was happening, they'd be like, no way, that's that we don't do that. So it was so against the grain of what ATF normally does that it, it started to get people upset. So the numbers would go up and up and up. It finally got to a point where uh, Brian Terry got killed, a uh, Border Patrol agent murdered yeah. with, with a gun that was purchased by one of the straw buyers in Operation Fast and Furious. An agent in that group, because again, we didn't know what was happening in that group because they weren't co-located with us. He blew the whistle. I'm at a, a another meeting where a special agent in charge of the Phoenix office explains that the U.S. Attorney's Office was very upset that John Dodson had blown the whistle on Operation Fast and Furious. And he made a comment, something, you know, I, I don't have it verbatim, but I, I'll get as close as I can. Either the U.S. attorney was pissed off and they were going to indict John Dodson or they were seriously considering indicting John Dodson. And at the time, I thought they were looking to indict John Dodson for blowing the whistle on Operation Fast and Furious. There were some other things that that John was involved in on operation that I later learned. So anyway, but I, I went home that night thinking, wow, this is absolute crap that here the U.S. attorney's office in Arizona is going to indict an ATF agent who blew the whistle on firearms trafficking when for years they wouldn't indict the many, many firearms traffickers that we brought to their attention. So the following morning, I woke up 
um, because they were denying at this point, Holder all the way down to U.S. attorney himself, even the head of the ATF office in Phoenix, who was a nice man, but way over his skis with experience. They were saying, we we don't walk guns. We didn't walk guns. So when I called Senator Grassley's office, I told them straight up. I said, look, what, what John Dodson's telling you isn't a lie. And, um, you know, if you subpoena me, I'll tell you everything you want to know about what wow. led to where we are now. And that's exactly what happened. Now, how afraid of the re repercussions of that? Because you, you're looking now, you're seeing that this man's potentially going to get charged. And now you're walking down that same road as well. What was was were you obviously legitimately concerned that you would now be in the crosshairs? Yeah, I, I was. But it, it was in a difficult situation because here I didn't know John. I didn't know him. It bothered me to think that an agent would get indicted when all of these folks didn't get indicted. But like I was talking to you about before, I, I also watched for years, my agents keep running into walls. Every time they would try to present a case to the U.S. Attorney's Office, they got an excuse as to why it couldn't be prosecuted. And, you know, we were working another case where a guy was smuggling grenades across the border, grenade disassembled grenades, no explosives in them. And he was making them into live grenades in Mexico. And the U.S. Attorney's Office wouldn't take those cases, that case either. Uh, they kept, you know, kicking the can on that one as well. So it was really a decision of like, do I thumb my nose at my oath or do I do what I think is the right thing as both a, an agent, but also as a guy who's leading a group of people who every time they try to do the right thing, got slapped down. And how were you received in among your guys once you decided to go, to go that route? What was weird? I, um, the, the, the day that I contacted Grassley's office, I had gone out with some friends and one of the friends that I, I had met for the first time that day was an agent named Jay Dobbins who had infiltrated the Hells Angels. And um, Jay blew the whistle on some things in, in ATF. And um, I told him and Tom Mangan, who was the PIO there, what I had done. And they're like, Jay was like, hey, man, you better just watch your back because they're going to come after you. He, he was right. But at the same time, you know, I just felt obligated to my people and to the people of Arizona to just explain what was happening because it was just, it was so wrong that there was no turning your back on it. So I, I knew they were going to come after me. My people, some of them were like, Hey boss, thanks for speaking up. There were others who were like, Hey man, why did you even get involved in this? Because, you know, they, they knew that my time as their boss wasn't going to be very long. Once I spoke up, you know, I, the, the U S attorney's office in Arizona is the only U S attorney's office in the state so I like in, in other places, like in New York City, had that happened and I burned my bridges with the Southern District of New York, I could have always done cases with Eastern District, you know what I mean, which is just mm -hmm. on the other side of the river. In Arizona, there was no other options. And, you know, we had good partnerships with the county or with the state. But as the leader of Phoenix Route 1, my job, aside from running cases and supervising my agents, was to act as an advocate for them with the Phoenix U.S. Attorney's Office. And my ability to do that at this point had just been completely abolished. It was it was non-existent. So you contact Senator Grassley, and uh, was there was he sitting on a, because he's Iowa Senator, I believe, was he sitting on a, on a committee or something like that that made his position relevant? John Dodson had contacted him. So that okay. was the person, you know, so, but he was the, he was in the judiciary, but he okay. was the ranking member. Got it, uh, but got he it. also okay. is a guy who's very passionate about whistleblower stuff. So I think that's why John Dotson reached out to Senator Grassley. Uh, but the issue then became, you know, when they started looking at Operation Fast and Furious, Senator Grassley didn't have subpoena power and Senator Leahy was pretending nothing was happening there. So that's why they went to Daryl Issa, who was the chairman of oversight. So he had subpoena power. So actually, even though I contacted Senator Grassley's office, the subpoena itself had come from Daryl Issa's office. Got it. 
And so you get subpoenaed to testify now in front of Congress about what's going on. And what was what was that like? Before I testified, and it the testimony is still on YouTube if anybody's interested, there was a deposition. So the deposition happened, I would estimate, in around April of 2011. The, the hearing, the actual hearing was in June. The deposition lasted about six or seven hours, and I laid everything on the table at this point because, again, I felt bad for the people of Phoenix that live there when criminals are walking the streets and, you know, we, we knew who they were and we were being told to let them go. I felt bad for my agents. It just, and I felt bad for other federal agencies as well. Cause that's the other thing I'd go to lunch with like a group supervisor from the FBI or from DEA. And it would always be the same question. Like, Hey, is the U S attorney's office taking your cases? And the answer was always the same too. Like, no, about 90% of our cases they're turning away. So, which made it complicated too, because you're asking like, well, maybe they're not taking our cases because they're busy with FBI cases or mm-hmm. or DCIS cases. But no, they they were swatting away cases from other agencies, according to the supervisors I'd have lunch with. I spoke about all of those cases in this deposition, and that, that deposition ended. And the de- I was being deposed by staffers from Daryl Ice's office, Elijah Cummings's office, because he was mm-hmm. the uh, ranking member of oversight, Democrat side, Grassley's staff, and. Senator Patrick Leahy's staff. The deposition happened at a hotel. I think it was a Westin near our field office, which was in downtown Phoenix, about six blocks. You know, when I first sat down, all four sets of staffers were like, hey, Mr. Faselli, thank you for coming here. This is how government works. We need whistleblowers. So I was like, okay, you know, I was a little worried. You know, I didn't know what, what, what DOJ was going to do with me. So by the time I walked back to my office, which was roughly six blocks, I get a phone call from an assistant U.S. attorney because I had some friends in, in that office. It wasn't the whole office that was messed up. And he's like, hey, man, be careful, Pete. He goes, everything that you just said in that deposition was relayed to the U.S. attorney himself, which was Dennis Burke at the time. A short time later, I get a call from another assistant U.S. attorney there who said, hey, man, can, can I meet you for coffee? There's something you need to know. I was like, sure. So we sat down and he handed me an email that he had printed out and it said, uh, it was from Dennis Burke to the entire U.S. Attorney's Office. So he's the chief federal law enforcement officer in the state of Arizona at the time. And it basically said anybody who sees Pete Fraselli, even if it's on a weekend having coffee with his family, is to report it to me through his chain of command immediately. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So at this point, I realize I'm dead in the water here in Arizona. So now it became just continue to tell the Senate and folks and the inspector general's office got involved. Everything I knew, you know, I, I just wanted to be as as truthful a witness as possible and as direct a witness as possible, because if they were going to come after me, I needed to be able to to stand behind the evidence. And, and that's what I did. So I never made it Pete versus ATF or or Pete versus the U.S. attorney's office, even although they bore the, the brunt of my my complaints in my testimony. It, it was about the problem about what was mm-hmm. happening there. And that's, I tried to stick to that and not make it political. And that's why every time something would come up, I would contact all four sets of staff. But what I found was, um, I guess, because Obama was the president at the time, I wasn't getting much help from the Democrat side. And I'm neither a Republican or a Democrat myself. Senator Grassley's staff answered the phone every time I called. Darrell Issa's staff were hot and cold. So, But I, I still called all four sides because I didn't want to be perceived as a political witness or that I was trying to be pulled to either side of the aisle. Um, I just wanted it to be, Hey, I'm shooting straight and I'm talking about the problems at hand and let's fix them. You know? Yeah. I mean, you mentioned you got out here in 2007 and I mean, George Bush was still president at that point. So it was yeah. obviously something that was occurring systemically within the office out here, as opposed to uh, I'm fast and furious. I believe that was Holder did, was the architect of that. 
but it seemed it seems like the, the it seems like there's problems out here even before the Obama administration came in. Yeah, no, clearly, uh, and that, you know, and that it's funny because some of the in the hearing itself, some of the people who asked me questions had brought that up, like Agent Fraselli. Clearly, we, you know, you're not here giving us political testimony because right, exactly. what you're complaining about spans several presidencies. But it, look, it was a problem that hasn't that wasn't fixed then. And I still speak to people that work in the um, you know ATF office in Phoenix. Things aren't better now. It's just it's unfortunate. Yeah, you bring me my next question where. You know, this is something that it's now 12 years ish in the rearview mirror when this whole thing broke. I, I know Operation Fast and Furious was officially closed, correct? Yes. What was the repercussion of all this in terms of your career? Because obviously you're no longer with the, the BATF. And and also you're saying now it looks like maybe nothing's really changed out here in Arizona. Well, a couple of things I learned. First is after the you know what hit the fan. Eric Holder had come out with an order that basically said, because I, one of the things I brought up in my testimony is how my agents weren't allowed to use the basic tools that we used elsewhere um, in getting their cases done. So one of the things I talked about was proffers, which was just a gigantic tool for us. And it's time consuming because, you know, sitting in an office interviewing this defendant with their lawyer and with an AUSA. So, I mean, you know, it takes time. And my Um, understanding of a proffer is basically if you're on the data or the information gathering side, person can come in there under, under a proffer agreement and essentially tell you anything and they're not they could tell you crimes that occurred and not be charged for those crimes is that an accurate description yes. of a proffer agreement that is entirely correct but they could be charged if they sign a cooperation agree with you mm-hmm. and then they they lie or recant but yeah, yeah. your point is, is accurate if they're going to come on board and, and be a witness and stick with the program and tell the truth even if people don't get convicted yeah then they're not going to get charged with those things that they spoke about uh, it's a great tool. So, but when I brought up how that wasn't happening, Trey Gowdy, who was one of the um, members of the oversight committee, who was an AUSA himself, went off about, how, I can't believe you people aren't allowed to proffer. Like he was, because he got it. So what happened was Eric Holder had sent out a letter to all the U.S. attorney's offices in the country saying, hey, firearms defendants, people arrested with illegal guns will be proffered. The U.S. attorney's office in Arizona, their response to that was to change the definition of a proffer. Um, a guy named Howard Sukenik, who was one of the chiefs there, had come in and said, our office's position, again, that's when you knew it was coming, is that a proffer is a letter that's written by a defense attorney to us saying that their defendant wants to talk about something. If we get such a letter, well, we will allow an interview to occur, but it will only be limited to what's mentioned in the four corners of that document. That's asinine because when you proffer someone, you want to know everything they know. And there's a reason for it. It's partially to protect the person that's giving you that information. Like, for example, if if you were proffering with me and, you know, you were involved in something and it may go to trial, the people you're testifying against know you. So if you don't tell us everything that you did, when you're on the witness stand, the defense they're gonna, attorney- They're going to point right back yeah, they, yeah, exactly. So, I mean, um, the, the concept that they would even come to us with this new office policy was asinine, but it, it shows you how- Within the Department of Justice, each district is its own little fiefdom, and there's mm-hmm. no consistency. And that's why, look, I know it's it's a little bit off topic, but you know, I, I in later assignments, I was asked to go to Chicago and talk to them because they the ATF wasn't happy with the prosecution level in Chicago. Also, hasn't gotten any better, different than how things are done in New York. Uh, I I was the in charge of ATF's Miami office, great office with the U.S. Attorney's office down there. They were very engaged. In, in different parts of the country, 
folks aren't getting the same attention from federal prosecutors' offices, which, mm-hmm. if you think about it, really equates to unequal justice. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's just odd. It's, it, you know, you, you always ask why. If you, if you have one specific area or one office that's doing things differently, you ask why. And so, how, so you now go and you testify in front of Congress where you, just kind of disgusted by the whole thing and decided to 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 leave the the uh, ATF at that point, or were you no, told to go? It, no, I didn't leave. My situation's a little bit weird, a little unique for a whistleblower. When they removed the command staff for ATF's Phoenix Field Division, which was when Fast and Furious, like when John Dotson blew the whistle. A short time later, Bill Newell, who was the office, he ran the office. He was gone. His two number twos, because they were two assistant special agents in charge. They were gone. They were replaced with some new folks. So by the time I was physically handed a subpoena, we had a new special agent charge guy named Tom Brandon, former Marine, polished guy. Um, Tom Atterbury um, was another guy who came in. Another guy, just a straight shooter. You knew exactly what Tom was thinking. He was very direct in his his conversations. So when I told him I got subpoenaed, Tom Brandon literally reached into his pocket, pulled out a St. Michael coin, very religious man, and handed it to me. He said, look, as long as you're telling the truth, I have your back, yeah. which doesn't happen in government a lot. I testified. DOJ came after me. The U.S. Attorney's Office made a, a bunch of accusations to include saying I perjured myself in my testimony. Um, but Tom Brandon and Tom Atterbury kept their word. Eventually, B. Todd Jones uh, was appointed as director. He was an Obama appointee. He was friends with Holder, so I thought I was a dead man walking. Um, he basically stayed hands off and was supportive. So I basically wound up staying with ATF, but for four years was fighting with DOJ to um, disprove the allegations that were made against me. And in the end, I did. So later, I was promoted by B. Todd Jones to be the head of ATF's Leadership and Professional Development Division because he felt like I fought my battles and you know minded my business and did what I had to do and didn't turn it into a Pete versus ATF thing. And then eventually I was sent down to Miami where I was the head of the ATF office in Miami during Parkland and Pulse and the Fort Lauderdale airport shooting. Um, and then eventually I was brought back up to the, um, to be the head of training for all of ATF, but that's because wow, Tom okay. Brandon, the guy who came out to Phoenix, the guy that gave me that coin yeah. was eventually promoted to be the deputy director and he kept his word. So, I mean, you know, I had even suggested, I like, you know, cause whistleblowers get crushed and I, that's not how it should work. I even suggested to the office of special counsel that they should consider giving an award to the guys who do the right thing for whistleblowers. Cause maybe it might encourage good government instead of crushing whistleblowers and having people's security clearances revoked, like they do to these FBI folks and just, you know, show them the door, listen to what folks have to say, you know, and the only way that happens is if people support whistleblowers like, like Tom and Tom did for me, frankly. Now, what were the repercussions on people in your personal life? Because you're going through this, and you know, every everyone that's that has close personal relationships, they share in that burden as well. If people were dealing with something, how was that? Oh, it was, it was difficult because we we moved out to Phoenix. Well, you you were out there as well. 2007 was the height of the market. 2010 yeah. was the bottom of the market. So we, I lost over two hundred thousand dollars on my house. My daughter had a full scholarship to the Cronkite School of Journalism. Um, she, she was in her first year. She didn't feel I safe because I mean, yep. so, she, so we walked away from that scholarship. My wife had a knee replacement. She was having some issues. And then I'd have to fly. It was funny. I, I got surveilled a couple of times. So I didn't feel safe communicating with my lawyer on the phone mm-hmm. or or um, an email. So I would travel 
and that travel nearly bankrupted us. We got to a point where we had $26 to our name and a mortgage payment that was coming up. Eventually, I wound up having to short sell the house, which everybody's like, oh, that's great because, you know, you, you were able to you know be absolved of that debt. What they don't realize is, yeah, that's partially true, but we, we lost all the money that we put down on the house and that we put into the house. And we left we left Arizona broke, you know, and, and didn't want to leave Arizona. My goal was to go out there and retire. I loved living there. Didn't didn't love working there, thanks to the U.S. Attorney's Office. So there were repercussions. But I was I was fortunate to have a supportive wife who weathered the storm with me. And I lost some friends as a result of Fast and Furious because, look, a lot of the ATF agents that got jammed up, there were a couple who were just not good people, somewhat sinister folks. Most of them were decent people who just did incredibly stupid things. But once again, they did incredibly stupid things because the U.S. Attorney's Office paved the path that led them there. And not to excuse bad decisions, because, again, they could have went to the county or to the state attorney general's office. They didn't have to let guns ride off into the sunset. Um, but it, it, I just the book helps explain why why we got there. So when did you ultimately decide to leave and, and retire? I left in um, October of 2021. Merrick Garland had come in as the attorney general. I didn't like some of the tone. It was very hyper political. I'm I'm not Republican. I'm not Democrat. I am a very pro law and order. You know, if you look where 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 there are no consequences, bad people do evil things. When I I started to hear some of the rhetoric about the gun industry, the gun industry, they were our friends. The gun industry, they were the ones that called us. And look, if we couldn't get out to the to the store, they would either delay the sale, saying Nick's didn't come back. And this wasn't one dealer. I'm talking about the dealers yeah. we dealt with in mass. I only saw one dirty gun dealer in my entire time with ATF. It was also in Phoenix. It was a case called Excalibur Arms. There's plenty of media on that if folks want to look it up. But invariably, we would get calls. We would show up, and the deal would happen, and we would attempt to make arrests or take arrests to the county. Or they would wait till the next day, saying there was a delay in Nick's, and we would do the same thing, You know, show up, do an interdiction, try to make arrests. Or they just wouldn't make the sale. So- when I started to hear folks demonizing the gun industry, it upset me. And I, I didn't want to be part of that. Not because, look, gun dealers calling us put their necks out on the line. I mean, you're yeah. dealing with people who were buying guns for the cartels. If the cartels found out these people were calling us back in those days, they would have been in harm's way. So it's just how do you how do you turn your back on them? And that's that's kind of where me and ATF have a difference of opinion now. I've been vocal about it. Don't demonize an industry. Don't beat up the people who are good partners. Just let's go after criminals and do what we did back when things were working right. And knowing the experience that you've had and having lived through it, for people that are whistleblowing, whether it's with a government agency or whether it is with a corporation, perhaps, what's your advice to them? Wow. Somebody asked me, and I, I don't want to answer you, not answer your question. Like, would I do it again? And yeah. I, I don't know if I would. Uh, I think I probably would, but I don't know. It's because you you're gonna get you're gonna get people upset. Your family is gonna go through hell. So what I would say is, I survived because I was fortunate that that guy Tom Brandon was out there and saw what was going on. Had he not been there, I might I might not have finished my career in ATF. But I would say, don't make it. If you're gonna blow the whistle, get a good lawyer. Number one, don't make it you versus the organization, it should be you and the problem. The other thing is find some allies, you know, don't, don't ostracize yourself. 
you're going to need people to support you. So I was fortunate to have those two people. Had I not gone to them and had a conversation, they might not have had my back. You know, so I, and that's something to, like right now, I volunteer some of my time for an organization called Empower Oversight. And uh, my role there is actually trying to talk to whistleblowers who are going through what they're going through to, to basically tell them a strategy. And the other thing, you know, when it comes to government stuff, don't be political because you're not going to win. It just stay apolitical, deal with the problem at hand. If you got to, you know, if you're a Republican, let the Democrats know if you're whatever, keep everybody informed so that they can't pull you into one side, because that's what happens is everything gets hyper political. Right. And sometimes truths get lost because of that. Now let's talk about, so you didn't just decide to ride into the sunset here. You wrote a book and <laughs> the book yeah. again is called the deadly path. How Operation Fast and Furious and Bad Lawyers Armed the Mexican Cartel. So, you know, we got a provocative title here, Pete. I mean, let's be honest. And this yeah. thing is coming out on March 3rd of 2024. It is available for pre-order on Amazon. But you know, now that you've actually putting something in print, and it looks like your pre-sales, at least based on the, your Amazon ranking here, you know, people are people are paying attention and and looking at this thing. What's um do you have any concerns about repercussions moving forward? No, uh, look, I'm retired. The other thing is everything I said in that book was something that's on the record somewhere. The problem is like when Fast and Furious was reported on, you, if you watched Fox News, heard the Republican version. If you watched the other news organizations, you heard, you know, depending on what side of the aisle they're on, a few of them were, were good, like Wall Street Journal, I thought was pretty straightforward. But nothing I said in that book isn't on the record under oath somewhere, number one. Right. Number two is one of the things that bothered me is like in my last position with ATF, I was the head of training and recruiting and hiring for ATF. And I would get approached by some newer agents, like some of them just were happy to have a job, but then there's always those who, who like they're happy to have a job. So they start researching the organization. And I'd have someone who would come up to me saying, Hey, are you the, the whistleblower? Cause I had hair back then. I don't look the same as I look now. And I would say, yeah, you know, and they were like, did we really give guns to the cartels? And my answer would always be, yeah, but it's not what you think. So it was, it bothered me to see young agents coming in, not knowing what had happened. And I had, I had discussed, like, why don't we put together some sort of training to make sure that this never happens again? And just so agents coming in or even some of the agents in other parts of the country know exactly what occurred in Phoenix. And I would always be told, no, you know, DOJ doesn't like that or DOJ doesn't want us to talk about it. I felt obligated to tell the story so that, People know because, you know, again, people either heard what, depending on what side of the aisle, you know, that the news organizations that you watch, you heard that side of the story. I want people to know the whole story. The other thing is, I hope some attorneys from around the country read it and see what can happen when they don't do their job. I mean, look what's going on now with all of these prosecutors who are turning their backs on cases. You know, there there's cause and effect, right? I mean, those things have an effect on public safety in those communities. So yeah, th this case affected Mexico and Arizona, but that same stuff, you know, when people are turning their back on prosecuting criminals has, has an effect in other parts of the country as well. Sure. Sure. So you mentioned you, you a couple ideas of people that should be reading your book. Anybody else that, um, that would have an interest in reading this book when it comes out next year? I think anybody that's interested in government scandals, I think people in law enforcement are certainly going to really, see some things that are going to shock them, frankly. I mean, unless they worked in districts that had similar positions. I, I hope it's appealing to everybody. And look, full disclosure, if you saw the cover of the book, it says it was authored by Peter Fraselli and Keelan McGregor. 
Okay. I wrote a 174,000 word manuscript that read like a very, very long police report. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Kate McGregor came in and just really made it into a, um, a, a better story that didn't read like a dull, dry police report. And it's funny because some of the folks who who read it, you know, because you always have the manuscript and you send out to some folks, say it reads like a novel. And that's that's Kate's doing. I tell the story and I don't pull punches and I name names. But as far as making it um, a, a an enjoyable read, I got to give the credit where it's due. That's that's all Kate. It's a great way to end off. As someone, what what did the book end with in terms of your word count? Where where were you? Oh, it's it's way less than that. It's about two hundred and seventy four pages, I believe. Probably eighty thousand words. I'm guessing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but I mean, I, it, there's a lot more info. Who knows? Maybe if if the book does well, I may do something else with that other information. But yeah, the the story. I think she did a good job telling the whole story with a lot less words. Yeah. Well, as, as somebody that's written a book as well, it's it's up on Amazon. My my first draft was about 160,000 words and we cut it down to about 110. And a good editor, we'll end on we'll end on a lighter a lighter topic. A good editor is absolutely worth worth all the time and energy and money that that you invest in that for sure. Yeah. Well, well, Peter, I can't thank you enough, man. This has been a fascinating conversation. I really appreciate you taking some time out of your day to to spend it and and with with us and and talk about everything that you experienced. Um, if anyone wants to read the book, it's obviously on Amazon. If anyone wants to reach out to you, perhaps talk a little bit more about the book or. Or if, or, or really, if there's any other issues that they might want to get your ear and, and learn from your experience, is there a way that they can reach you? I found you on LinkedIn. That's how we met. Yeah, no, I, I'm on LinkedIn a bit. It was the only social media that I had for a while. Now that I have a book out, I've had to join Facebook and so many other things to just push the word out. Um, I put my Facebook profile together because I thought I needed a job back in 2011. Right. So that's actually when I created the profile. So they can reach me on LinkedIn or or. Because of the book, I created a website. It's peterjforselli.com. Um, so I can be reached there as well. But yeah, I'm happy to answer questions. People deserve to know what their government does for them. Peter, again, thank you so much. And this is a fascinating conversation. And I cannot wait to read this book in about five months or so from now, five, six months. Well, thanks for the invite. It was honored to be here. Absolutely. Yeah, and I just have to interject here because uh, as a reporter, I covered Fast and Furious a little bit. And Pete, and I really appreciate this book more than I can even begin to communicate to you. Not the least of which is a lot of people now think of Fast and Furious as a movie, a highly successful movie. Yeah, uh, entertaining, series. entertaining movies. Yeah, exactly. Entertaining movie series and don't realize that there is a there is a dark, dark scandal behind all of this. And I remember well Brian Terry yeah. being killed and his murder being connected with guns from that operation. So thank you very much. And I would encourage our listeners to put that pick up that book when it comes out because it's it sounds like a it sounds like a great read i won't lie to you i'm well, looking forward to it for those who read it i'm absolutely open to any comments the book's 100 true so i hope you enjoy it but if not let me know and maybe said if there's another book i'll try to do a better job but i think i think folks are going to like it yeah and i just want to i also by the way just want to say thank you for bringing up uh senator grassley because in my in my in my years of experience and exposure senator grassley has been one of the more reliable consistent characters of, in terms of politics that that uh, i ever had any dealings with and i found him to be extremely honorable i'm glad to know that he was that way with you as well that's good thank you yeah well he he kept his word so that's great it counts for something Brett, you you bring 
great conversations to your listeners. This is fantastic. And this doesn't have anything to do with money, but it is a fascinating, it is a fascinating conversation. And I, and I would think that probably there's some people who are listening to this who think, well, based on this, just this alone, they might want to get in touch with you. So why don't you share how folks could reach out and get in touch with you if they want to. Sure. And, and one of my goals of the podcast, you know, as you know, is how, how many times can you talk about growth versus value or, or different investment things? Yeah. I, you know, money's intertied with everything. And so that that's kind of my mandate is if it's, if it's something that's interesting to me, that helps me understand how the world works, the, the, the broader exposure I can get to just the operations of how things are going out there, I think is, is a helpful thing. But to your point, yeah, if anyone wants to reach me here, the number here in the office is uh, 602-255-0555. There's uh, Andy, there's Kayla, there's myself, there's Susan. We got a phenomenal team here that they can uh, get you in contact with me. And also, our website is either smartmoneysimplified.com or mpadvisorsaz.com. Uh, or you can find me on LinkedIn. It's actually right now, it's my only social media platform, but I'm pretty active on that and uh, check it regularly and usually post something every other day or so. That's fantastic. And for those of you who are listening to this podcast and who are not yet subscribers, be sure to hit the subscribe button. Because that way you don't have to remember where you found this podcast or when this podcast comes out. You'll be notified. It'll be delivered directly to you. You won't have to do any thinking. You just hit the button and listen to the next one. You won't miss it. On behalf of Brent and his entire team, he just ran through. Thank you very much for listening. And on behalf of everybody associated with this podcast, I want to remind everyone, don't wait. Live your best life today. Thank you for listening to this episode of Smart Money Simplified Podcast. Have any questions about topics covered during the show? Visit www.smartmoneysimplified.com or give us a call at 602-255-0555. Don't forget to click the follow button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the hosts and or guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Raymond James Financial Services Incorporated. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional financial advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service providers with any questions you may have regarding your individual situation. Securities are offered through Raymond James Financial Services Incorporated, member FINRA, and SIPC. Investment advisory services offered through Raymond James Financial Services Advisors Incorporated, MP Advisors, LLC, is not a broker slash dealer and is independent of Raymond James Financial Services.